0: Section twenty five. The Book of Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Barring Gould. Section twenty five. A Dead Finger. Part two. I had recently placed the lighting of my house in the hands of an electrical engineer, a very intelligent man, Mr. Square for whom I had contracted a sincere friendship. He had built a shed with a dynamo out of sight, and had entrusted the laying of the wires to subordinates, as he had been busy with other orders and could not personally watch every detail. But he was not a man to let anything pass unobserved, and he knew that electricity was not a force to be played with. Bad or careless workmen will often insufficiently protect the wires, or neglect the insertion of the lead which serves as a safety valve in the event of the current being too strong. Houses may be set on fire, human beings fatally shocked by the neglect of a bad or slovenly workman. The apparatus for my mansion was just completed, and Mr. Square had come to inspect it and make sure all was right. He was an enthusiast in the matter of electricity, and saw for it a vast perspective, the limits of which could not be predicted. "'All forces,' he said, "'are correlated. When you have force in one form, you may just turn it into this or that as you like.' In one form it's motive power, another it is light, another heat. Now we have electricity for illumination. We employ it, but not as freely as in the states, for propelling vehicles. Why should we have horses drawing our buses? We should use only electric trams. Why do we burn coal to warm our shins? There's electricity which throws out no filthy smoke as does coal. Why should we let the tides waste their energies in the Thames and other estuaries? There we have nature supplying us, free gratis, and for nothing, with all the force we want for propelling, for heating, for lighting. I will tell you something more, my dear sir," said Mr. Square. I have mentioned but three modes of force, and have instanced but a limited number of uses to which electricity may be turned. How is it with photography? Is it not electric light becoming an artistic agent? I bet you," he said, before long it will become a therapeutic agent as well. Oh, yes, I have heard of certain impostors with their life-belts mr square did not relish this little dig i gave him he winced but returned to the charge we don't know how to direct it aright that's all he said i haven't taken the matter up but others will i bet and we shall have electricity used as freely now as we use powders and pills i don't believe in doctor's stuff myself i hold that disease lays hold of a man because he lacks physical force to resist it now is it not obvious that you are beginning at the wrong end when you attack the disease what you want to do is supply force make up for the lack of physical power and force is force wherever you find it here motive there illuminating and so on I don't see why a physician should not utilize the tide rushing out under the London Bridge for restoring the feeble vigor of all who are languid and prey to disorder in the metropolis. It will come to that, I bet, and that's not all. Forces everywhere—political, moral force, physical force, dynamic force, heat, light, tidal waves, and so on. All are one. One is all. In time we shall know how to galvanize into aptitude and moral energy all the limp and crooked consciences and wills that need taking in hand, and such there will always be in modern civilization. I don't know how it will be done, but in the future the priest as well as the doctor will turn to electricity on as his principal, nay his only agent. And he can get his force anywhere, out of the running stream, out of the wind, out of the tidal wave. I'll give you an instant continued mr square chuckling and rubbing his hands to show you the greatest possibilities in electricity used in a crude fashion in a certain great city far away west in the states a go-ahead place too more so than new york they had electric trams all up and down and along the roads to everywhere the union men working for the company demanded that the non-unionists should be turned off but the company didn't see it instead it turned off the union men It had up its sleeve a sufficiency of the others, and filled all places at once. Union men didn't like it, and passed word that at a given hour on a certain day every wire was to be cut. The company knew this by means of its spies, and turned on, ready for them, three times the power into all of the wires. At the fixed moment, up the poles went the strikers to cut the cables, and down they came a dozen times quicker than they went up, I bet then there came the wires to the hospitals from all quarters for stretchers to carry off the disabled men some with broken legs arms ribs two or three had their necks broken i reckon the company was wonderfully merciful it didn't put on sufficient force to make cinders of them then and there possibly opinion might have not liked it stop the strike did that great moral effect all done by electricity in this manner mr square was wont to rattle on he interested me and i came to think that there might be something in what he said that his suggestions were not mere nonsense. I was glad to see Mr. Square enter my room, shown in by my man. I did not rise from my chair to shake his hand, for I had not sufficient energy to do so. In a languid tone I welcomed him and signed him to take a seat. Mr. Square looked at me with some surprise. "'Why, what's the matter?' he said. "'You seem unwell.' "'Not got the flu, have you?' "'I beg your pardon?' "'The influenza. Every third person is crying out that he has it, and the sale of eucalyptus is enormous. Not that eucalyptus is any good. Influenza microbes, indeed. What care they for eucalyptus? You've gone down some steps of the ladder in life since I saw you last, Squire. How do you account for that?" I hesitated about mentioning the extraordinary circumstances that had occurred, but Squire was a man who could not allow any beating about the bush. He was downright and straight and in ten minutes he had got the entire story out of me. Rather boisterous for your nerves, that a crawling finger,' he said. "'It's a queer story taken on end.' Then he was silent, considering. After a few minutes he rose and said, "'I'll go and look at the fittings, and then I'll turn this little matter of yours over again and see if I can knock the bottom out of it. I'm kinder fond of these sorts of things. Mr. Square was not a Yankee, but he had lived for some time in America, and affected to speak like an American. He used expressions, terms of speech, common in the States, but had none of the transatlantic twang. He was a man absolutely without affection in every other particular. This was his sole weakness, and it was harmless. The man was so thorough in all that he did, I did not expect his return immediately. He was certain to examine every portion of the dynamo engine, and all the connections and burners. This would necessarily engage him for some hours. As the day was nearly done, I knew he could not accomplish what he wanted that evening, and accordingly gave orders that a room should be prepared for him. Then, as my head was full of pain, and my skin was burning, I told my servant to apologize for my absence from dinner, and tell Mr. Square that I was really forced to return to my bed by sickness, and that I believed I was about to be prostrated by an attack of influenza. The valet, a worthy fellow, who has been with me for six years, was concerned at my appearance, and urged me to allow him to send for a doctor. I had no confidence in the local practitioner, and if I sent for another from the nearest town I should offend him, and a row would perhaps ensue, so I declined. If I were really in for an influenza attack, I knew about as much as my doctor how to deal with it. Quinine, quinine, that was all. I bade my man light a small lamp, lower it, so as to give sufficient illumination to enable me to find some lime-juice at my bed-head and my pocket-handkerchief and to be able to read my watch when he had done this i bade him leave me i lay in bed burning racked with pain in my head and with my eyeballs on fire whether i fell asleep or went off my head for a while i cannot tell i may have fainted i have no recollection of anything after having gone to bed and taken a sip of lime-juice that tasted to me like soap till I was aroused by a sense of pain in my ribs, a slow, gnawing, torturing pain, waxing momentarily more intense. In half-consciousness I was partly dreaming and partly aware of actual suffering. The pain was real, but in my fantasy I thought a great maggot was working its way into my side between my ribs. I seemed to see it. It twisted itself half round, then reverted to its former position, and again twisted itself, moving like a bridle not like a gimlet which later forms a complete revolution this obviously must have been a dream hallucination only as i was lying on my back and my eyes were directed towards the bottom of the bed and the coverlet and blankets and sheet intervened between my eyes and my side but in a fever one sees without eyes and in every direction and through all obstructions roused thoroughly by an excruciating twinge i tried to cry out and succeeded in throwing myself over on my right side that which was in pain at once i felt the thing withdrawn that was awling if i may use the word in between my ribs and now i saw standing beside the bed a figure that had under its arm the bedclothes and was slowly removing it the hand was leisurely drawn from under the coverings and rested on the down coverlet with the forefinger extended the finger was that of a man in shabby clothes a sallow mean face a retreating forehead with hair cut after the french fashion and a moustache dark the jaws and chin were covered with gristly growth as if shaving had been neglected for a fortnight the figure did not appear to be thoroughly solid but to be of the consistency of curd and the face was the complexion of a curd as i looked at this object it withdrew sliding back in an odd sort of manner as though overweighted by the hand which was the most substantial indeed only the substantial portion of it Though the figure retreated stooping, yet it was no longer huddled along by the finger, as if it had no material existence. If the same, it had acquired a consistency and a solidity which it did not possess before. How it vanished I do not know, nor whether it went. The door opened, and Squire came in. "'What?' he exclaimed with a cheery voice. "'Influenza, is it?' "'I don't know. I think it's that finger again.' "'Now look here,' said Square. I'm not going to have that cuss at its pranks any more. Tell me about it." Now I was so exhausted, so feeble, that I was not able to give a connected account of what had taken place. But Square put to me just a few pointed questions and elicited the main facts. He pieced them together in his own orderly mind so as to form a connected whole. There's a feature in this case, he said, that strikes me as remarkable and important. At first a finger only, then a hand. Then a nebulous figure attached to the hand, without backbone, without consistency, lastly a complete form, with consistency and with backbone, but the latter in a gelatinous condition, and the entire figure overweighted by the hand, just as the hand and figure were previously overweighted by the finger. Simultaneously with this compacting and consolidating of the figure came your degeneration and loss of vital force, and in a word, of health what you lose that object acquires and what it acquires it gains by contact with you that's clear enough is it not i dare say i don't know i can't think i suppose not the facility of thought is drained out of you very well i must think for you and i will force is force And if I can't deal with your visitant in such a way as will prove just as truly a moral dissuasive as that employed by the Union men on strike in—never mind where it was—that's not to the point." "'Will you kindly give me some lime juice?' I entreated. I sipped the acid draught, but without relief. I listened to Square, but without hope. I wanted to be left alone. I was weary of my pain, weary of everything, even life. It was a matter of indifference to me whether I recovered or slipped out of existence. It will be here again shortly, said the engineer. As the French say, petit vient mongeant. It has been at you thrice. It won't be content without another peck. And if it does get another, I guess it will pretty well about finish you. Mr. Square rubbed his chin and then put his hands into his trouser pockets. That was also a trick acquired in the States, and an inelegant one. His hands, when not actively occupied, went in his pockets. Inevitably, they gravitated thither. The ladies did not like Square. They said he was not a gentleman. But it was not that he said or did anything off-color. Only he spoke to them, looked at them, walked with them, always with his hands in his pockets. I have seen a lady turn her back on him deliberately because of this trick. Standing now with his hands in his pockets, he studied my bed, and said contemptuously, "'Old-fashioned and bad four-poster!' oughtn't be allowed i guess unwholesome all the way round i was not in a condition to dispute this i like a four-poster with curtains at the head and feet not that i ever draw them but it gives a sense of privacy that is wanting in one of your half tester beds if there is a window at one's feet one can lie in bed without the glare in one's eyes and yet without darkening the room by drawing the blinds there is much to be said for a four-poster but this is not the place in which to say it Mr. Square pulled his hands out of his pockets and began fiddling with the electric point near the head of my bed, attached wire, swept it in a semicircle along the floor, and then thrust the knob at the end into my hand in the bed. Keep your eye open, he said, and your hand shut and covered. If that finger comes again, tickling your ribs, try it with the point. I'll manage the switch from behind the curtain. Then he disappeared. I was too indifferent in my misery to turn my head and observe where he was. I remained inert, with the knob in my hand and my eyes closed, suffering and thinking of nothing but the shooting pains through my head and the aches in my loins and back and legs. Some time probably elapsed before I felt the finger again at work on my ribs. It groped, but no longer bored. I now felt the entire hand, not a single finger, and the hand was substantial, cold, and clammy. I was aware how, I know not, that if the finger-point reached the region of my heart on the left side, the hand would, so to speak, sit down on it, with the cold palm over it, and then immediately my heart would cease to beat, and it would be, as Square might express it, gone coon with me. In self-preservation I brought the knob of the electric wire against the hand, against one of the ringers, I think, and at once was aware of a rapping, squealing noise. I turned my head languidly and saw the form, now more substantial than before, capering in an ecstasy of pain, endeavoring fruitlessly to withdraw its arm from under the bedclothes and the hand from the electric point. At the same moment Square stepped from behind the curtain. With a dry laugh he said, I thought we should fix him. He has the coil about him and can't escape. Now let's drop to particulars. But I shan't let you off until I know all about you the last sentence was addressed not to me, but to the apparition. Thereupon he bade me take the point away from the hand of the figure, being whatever it was, but to be ready with it at a moment's notice. He then proceeded to chastise my visitor, who moved restlessly within the circle of wire, but could not escape from it. It replied in a thin, squealing voice that sounded as if it came from a distance, and had a querulous tone in it. I do not pretend to give all that was said i cannot recollect everything that passed my memory was affected by my illness as well as my body yet i prefer giving the scraps that i recollect to what square told me he had heard yes i was unsuccessful always was nothing answered with me the world was against me society was i hate society i don't like work neither never did but i like agitating against what's established i hate the royal family the landed interest, the parsons, everything that is, except the people, that is, the unemployed, I always did. I couldn't get work as suited me. When I died they buried me in a cheap coffin, dirt cheap, and gave me a nasty grave, cheap, and a service rattled away cheap, and no monument. Didn't want one. Oh, there are lots of us. All discontented. Discontent. That's a passion. It is. It gets into the veins, it fills the brain, it occupies the heart. It's a sort of divine cancer that takes possession of the entire man and makes him dissatisfied with everything and hate everybody. But we must have our share of happiness at some time. We all crave for it, in one way or another. I think there's a future state of blessedness, and so have hope. But look to attain it, for hope is a cable and anchor that attaches to what is real. But when you have no hope of that sort, don't believe in any future state. You must look for happiness in life here. We didn't get it when we were alive, so we seek to procure it after we are dead. We can do it, if we can get out of our cheap and nasty coffins. But not until the greater part of us is moldered away. If a finger or two remains, that can work its way up to the surface. Those cheap deal coffins go to pieces quick enough. Then the only solid part of us left can pull the rest of us that has gone to nothing after it. Then we grope about after the living, the well-to-do if we can get at them, the honest working poor if we can't. We hate them, too, because they are content and happy. If we reach any of these and can touch them, then we can draw their vital force out of them into ourselves and recuperate at their expense. That was about what I was going to do with you—getting on famous nearly solidified into a new man and given another chance in life but i've missed it this time just like my luck missed everything always have except misery and disappointment get plenty of that what are you all asked square anarchists out of employ some of us go by that name some by other designations but we are all one and own allegiance to but one monarch sovereign discontent we are bred to have distaste for manual work, and we grow up loafers, grumbling at everything and quarreling with the society that is around us and the providence that is above us. And what do you call yourselves now? Call ourselves? Nothing. We are the same, in another condition. That is all. Folk called us once anarchists, nihilists, socialists, levelers. Now they call us the influenza. They learn to talk of microbes and bacilli, and bacteria microbes bacilli and bacteria be blowed we are the influenza we the social failures the generally discontented coming up out of our cheap and nasty graves in the form of physical disease we are the influenza there you are i guess exclaimed square triumphantly did i not say that all forces were correlated if so then all negotiations deficiencies of force are one in their several manifestations talk of divine discontent as a force impelling to progress. Rubbish! It's a paralysis of energy. It turns all it absorbs into acid, envy, spite, gall. It inspires nothing, but rots the whole moral system. Here you have it, moral, social, political discontent, in any form, nay, aspect. That is all. What anarchism is in the body politic, that influenza is in the body physical. Do you see that? Yes, I believe I answered, and dropped away into the land of dreams. I recovered. What Square did with the thing, I do not know, but believe that he reduced it again to its former negative and self-deposing condition. End of 25 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah www.voiceover-solutions.com